pray. With confidence we now draw nigh. Father, Abba, Father, cry. Father, we come before you this morning with great confidence because of Christ. Great confidence because of your spirit that indwells us. Great confidence because your word that you have prepared for us and set before us. You haven't left us alone. You haven't left us as orphans. But you're constantly at work. And this morning we come and we praise you and we worship you. And we come now to your word and we ask that you would use it in our lives to do that work which we most need. For each one of us, it's something just a little bit different. But nonetheless, it's something that only you can do. And so we confess our great need for you. We ask that you would work against that resistance, against those things in our hearts, against the, the thoughts of our mind that would preoccupy us. I'm going to pray that you would change and transform us so that as we walk out of here this morning, we'll have heard from you. And that our lives would be in some way just a little different because of that. And that the world would see that you're real to your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe may be seated. I don't know if you like the rain as it continues to fall, but it's a nice sound in the backdrop, as long as it didn't get too loud. Uh, we wondered how many might make it out for the first service this morning, but uh, we're glad that, that you came, even as it gets louder now, huh, as the rain starts to turn up the volume a little bit. Um, you can open your Bibles to the, the book of 1 John, what are you sharing this morning. Bill's in Pittsburgh. Uh, this last week, you know, is preparing for this for me, and last week was Chad and uh, talking in, in our family, you know, daddy's got to kind of get ready for the sermon, and you try to explain to your kids, it's kind of a big deal, kind of, you know, uh, and they're like, oh, whatever, and my daughter is so cute this last week, she goes, I don't kind of get it, why don't, why don't you just get up there and say, God is good, and then just go sit down. That's kind of sermon. You know, that's not bad. I'd have a hard time improving. There goes Mark. Uh, have a hard time improving on that. And uh, I couldn't exactly explain to her why we couldn't just do that. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I won't improve, but I hope to expand on that just a little bit this morning. So I'm going to read uh, the end of 1 John chapter 1, and then I'm going to read the first two verses. And the first two verses of chapter 2 or we're going to turn our attention this morning. Verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I don't know if you, about you, but if you were to talk to different people about what the core message of Christianity is or what the Christian faith is ultimately all about, you might get a variety of kinds of things that people would say. What they would look at, right, is our external kinds of things that they would see and say Christianity is about this act or that act. Well, on, uh, on YouTube, 
I'm kind of with it these days. And there's um, some video clips that some churches put out. It's called Christian No More. And maybe some of you have seen these clips. There's a variety of little vignettes. And each one, it's, it plays on the Mac PC parody. And you have one guy, you have a Christian and you have a Christ follower, okay? And they kind of, they're contrasted in these little scenarios that they do. The Christian, if you can imagine, wears his suit. He's fairly rigid in the way that he lives. The, and he's the PC guy, right? And then on the other side, you have the Mac guy. He's a little more laid back. He's casual. Well, the, each one presents a different avenue of what Christianity, what defines, if you will, this particular person, the rigid kind of person who wears a suit. And one of them, it talks about him. He has his little J-Pod that has 77 gig of, of music, of Christian music on it. Another one has to do with his bumper sticker collection, his Christian bumper sticker collection, and he's got it on his jacket. Another one has to do with his stack of books, okay, which is kind of his curriculum as a Christian, and even another one has to do with the way that he has to dress in order to come to church. And each one of them kind of defines this person in this kind of strict kind of way, that what it means to be a Christian is that you live this kind of way. And of course, the Christ follower has a different perspective. He presents kind of this more laid back. It's, it's more driven not by what you, how you dress or what you listen to or even the books you read or whatever, as much as it's about a relationship with God. And again, the point of the whole the scenario is that it depicts for us how oftentimes a Christian life can be inseparably connected to certain kinds of things, which in and of themselves are not bad, but they miss the point of what the Christian faith is really all about. And the book that we're looking at, these, these, two, past, these two verses that we want to look at this morning, what John wants to do for us is present for us the very crux, the very core of the Christian faith. And what he wants us to capture to get here, and he does it throughout the rest of his book and his writing as well, is that what the Christian life is ultimately about, it's about fellowship with God his Father. That what the Christian life is ultimately about, it's not, those are the things, you can take them or leave them, but it's about an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And that's the point. And there's lots of other things that we can attach to that, but we can't get to Christianity, we can't understand what it really means apart from a relationship, apart from fellowship, apart from intimacy with God. And indeed, for each one of us, that's our desire. For those who know Christ, who have tasted Him, and have struggled even with the externalities of it, recognize that what this thing is really all about is day in and day out walking with God and waking up in the morning and realizing He's real and He's there and He's with us. And no matter what happens day in and day out, that He walks with us. And what John wants to do in these two verses that we're looking at is present to us what a picture of what this fellowship, the basis of our fellowship with him is. And we have a combination here of a variety of things. Real quick, by way of some backdrop, what we have is that he's writing to some churches and probably in Asia who are dealing with some false teachers who have come in with these notions that the material world is inherently evil. And what they have done in their teaching is that they have undermined the incarnation of Christ. And so Christ didn't come as in the real flesh. He couldn't have. At the same time, as I read those last few verses of chapter 5, you'll see that the issue of sin is in there. And what you see is that they had certain claims that these false teachers would make. And for example, in verse 8 and verse 10, you see two of them. He says, if we say we have no sin. And so some of the claims that the false teachers were making was that that sin was a category that no longer applied to them. 
And this pre-Gnostic kind of philosophy basically taught that with certain specialized knowledge, you could move beyond the material world. And so in this way, sin really didn't apply to these teachers. And so when John writes to them, this is the context in which he's writing. They have a wrong idea of sin, not his readers, but to those who have been teaching wrongly. And he's trying to instruct them correctly. A wrong idea of sin and a wrong idea of Christ. And at the same time, because this Gnostic philosophy was so exclusive, he wants to do something else in this passage. He wants them to understand that the scope of God's saving purposes is not exclusive, but it's much broader and more diverse than they could imagine. And so that's what he deals with in the, in the, throughout the book in these two verses. What he, did, what he does following these couple verses and this transition that we're going to look at is he really begins to set up for them tests of authenticity of the Christian faith. Tests that reveal what authentic faith looks like. Authentic faith believes in Christ. It has a right understanding of what doctrine looks like. Authentic faith has a right understanding of what obedience looks like before God and right and right to, authentic Christianity has a right understanding of what it looks like socially regarding our love for one another. And so he goes on in verse 3 and beyond. But as we look at these two verses, let me read these again. 1 and 2 of chapter 2. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of of the whole world. Three things I want to touch on this morning. As we consider the, the core of the Christian faith and having fellowship with God, one, in order to have fellowship with God, it's essential that we have a right understanding of our sin as a Christian. The, the second one, we understand the basis of our, of our sin and on which it's dealt is the, the work of Christ. And John gives us a great picture here. And the third one has to do with the scope. Because at each point that the false teachers get it wrong, John here wants to correct them, wants to give them a right understanding of sin, a right understanding of Christ, and a right understanding of the scope of the gospel. Now these two, these two verses really are, are transitioning. You see the introduction there? My little children, as he switches from teaching about sin, he says, my little children. Now it might be strange language to us, but to them, he's, it's an endearing kind of term. He's probably older than them, and he, and he cares about them. And he says, the reason I'm writing these things to you is that so that that you may not sin. He goes, no matter what you've heard, I've just told you that there's no claim to no sin. Indeed, those we need to confess our sins. The reason I'm writing, I want to tell you these things, is so that you do not sin. That my heart, my desire, and indeed what I believe to be your desire is that you do not sin. Because to have fellowship with God is to avoid sin. And so he wants to deal with them because the question they might be asking is, how does a Christian deal with sin? How do we deal with this? How do we live in the context of a world in which we sin and others sin? How do we deal with that? How do we live there? And there's a couple things that's important for us. First of all, it's, we note that this is not a command not to sin. He's not writing them to tell them not to sin. They already know that sin is not necessarily in accordance with their Christian life. But it's not a command not to sin, but rather it points toward their desire and his desire for them. He says, I'm writing that you may not sin, that my desire for you is that you don't live a life that's characterized by sin. But also we see that there's, there's, a, there's not even a promise in this. There's not a promise that they will not sin. They won't have to deal with it. So the question is, how does a Christian deal with this world of, as we live in the presence of sin? There's a couple things he assumes. 
The first one is that we will all deal with sin. In verse 9 of the previous chapter, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So the assumption there, as well as in the second half of verse 1, where he says, but if anyone does sin, the assumption is as long as we live, as long as we are breathing people, we will struggle with sin. That we will live in the presence of sin in our own lives, in the lives of others. So the assumption is that they will live in the presence of sin and they will struggle with that. The second one, the second assumption, though, that he has is that they don't want to sin. And indeed, any of us, as we have tasted what it means to know God, and we've tasted really where sin takes us, and we still struggle with that reality, we realize that's not where I want to go. That what I really want is not to sin. What I really want is to know God. I really want to have fellowship with Him. And as you've tasted both, there's no comparison between the two. So he assumes that their desire is that they would not sin. But he offers a great hope for them. He says that we don't have to be ruled by sin. My right to you so that you may not sin. That there's hope that sin does not have to characterize your lives. That sin doesn't have to be the thing that rules you or dominates your life. And so there's great hope. And he wants to know, the readers, he wants us to know that while we live in the presence of it, we don't have to live under its power. And then he goes on in the second half of the same verse. He wants them to know, this is why I'm writing to you, that you may not sin. But the other side, he says, but if anyone does sin. And he really wants to hold these two possible extreme positions in tension. He wants to, the one position might be a person who's too lenient and dismisses sin completely out of hand. And the other person is one who's too severe as a Christian and understands that what, that it's, it's, or thinks that it's too great, it's more than God can cover. And John wants to avoid both of these positions, the too lenient or the too severe position. And so to the person who's too lenient, he says, I write that you may not sin. Remember that uh, following God and fellowship with God involves avoiding sin. and It involves running from it. The goal is not only not to sin, the goal is ultimately to have fellowship with God. It's to enjoy Him. He wants to remind them that they don't have to be dominated by sin and that the power of sin in their lives has been broken. But to the person that's too severe, the believer who wrestles with it and is too severe, if you will, he says, but to the one who sins, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. What's he remind them of? He reminds them of their position in Christ. He reminds them of what's most true about them. What most defines them is not anything external. It's not even their sin. What most defines the Christian is the position that Christ has. What most defines them is the work that Christ has done on their behalf. What most defines them is the fact that they have Christ as a representative before the Father. That's what's most true of them. Reminds them that the penalty of sin has been paid. No longer is it theirs to pay, but it's been dealt with. And for us, we must not take sin too lightly nor too severely. We need to understand that the power of sin has been broken. We need to understand that the penalty has been paid for. But we still live in the presence of it. And as long as we are breathing, as long as we are alive, we will struggle with it. But the reality is, as long as we confess our sins, there's forgiveness that he grants to us. And so, what John wants his readers to get, that fellowship with God comes as we understand sin. As we understand as a Christian, we don't have to be dominated by it. We don't have to be defined by it. But he will empower us to walk and to live in the presence of it. He goes on, though, as he, as he presents this, he illustrates the picture of our faith. He, he, he illustrates what Christ has done. 
and we see that our fellowship has expanded even further as we understand this. There's two pictures, right? There's a picture of the advocate. Christ is the advocate for us, and he's the propitiation. And each one kind of builds on the other one. First, the first picture there is Christ as our advocate. It's really a, it's a legal setting that's in view here. An advocate, a, one that represents us, one who pleads another's case before a judge. And even though this is really the only place that this particular word is used, there's, there's a variety of other places you can find in Scripture where the same, the same message is there, the same role of Christ is depicted, but with different nuances. I want to look at three different places that the same role as advocate that Jesus Christ plays for us is used. Look, um, turn with me in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 33 and 34. Romans 8. <clears throat> Paul's writing here, asking a variety of rhetorical kinds of questions, and he says, verse 33 of chapter 8, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. And you see there, the question is, who is there to condemn us? And, and why is the answer no one? Because Christ Jesus, who had died, is raised from the dead. And you see his role there, the very last line. He is the one who is interceding for us. He is representing us before the Father. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, another picture from Paul of Christ's role as advocate for us. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5 of 1 Timothy. Paul writes, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So there's one God, and there's only one mediator between God and man. There's one advocate, there's only one person who can fill the gap between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And then turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. In this particular context, the writers is dealing is with the priesthood of Christ. And we see this mediation kind of role presented here as well. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, that's Christ, permanently because he continues forever consequently is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them and you see here the picture in the role of Christ as mediator is, is the priest and he always lives to make intercession and that's why we are saved completely or utterly because he always stands before the father as you turn back to first John now our passage again we see that this, this picture of advocate, this picture of mediation um, is one in which we need one who is like us and yet like God. Christ fills that role as man and God. We see him that he is in the presence of the Father. He is with him and he pr presents our case before the Father. He is also de described in this passage as Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the one who is righteous. He is the one that had no sin in and of himself. 
and so he could bear our sin, and so he could then give to us his righteousness. Also, we see that he always lives to intercede. He is always present before the Father. And because he will never die, he will always fill that place for us. And finally, because there's only one mediator, there's only one person that can fulfill this role. There's only one, one, every, only one man. Every person has need of what Christ has to offer. There is nowhere else that we can go. No other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And that's why Jesus himself could say, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other place to go. Only one person that can represent us before God. And so as we understand this work of Christ on our behalf, our fellowship with him grows. But then Paul goes on to expand on this, this role as advocate in the next verse where he says, he is the propitiation. And if you've been around here, you know, that's a word that Bill likes to use and he teaches on and you've, maybe you aren't, maybe you've heard this before and you know what that means. But there's a couple things that's important for us. Because the question we ask, if he's our advocate, if he represents us before the Father, we know that the, the case that he pleads for us before the, before the Father is not a case of innocence, right? He does not plead that we are innocent in and of ourselves. He pleads that we are guilty. And so what does he do? How is it that he can then cover our sin? What is it that he does? The propitiation role, this role that we see here. He doesn't plead our innocence. He doesn't say these are, there are extenuating circumstances as regards our sins. But rather, he says, we are guilty, but my righteousness and what I have done will cover, will atone. Two parts to this work. The first part really has to do with the sin being paid for, the sin being covered. The second half has to do with the wrath of God. And if you've been around, you've heard that, and you know that both parts are necessary. You know that the sin needs to be covered because there's a payment necessary. At the same time, that wrath of God that was normally due to me and due to you needed to be exhausted and it was poured out on Christ. And so when, Paul, or when John writes here that he, Jesus, is the propitiation, he took on himself the wrath of God. He took on himself that penalty for our sin. And so this wrath of God, it's not arbitrary but it's purposeful and it flows from his holy character. And so our fellowship with God grows and it's expanded as we understand the right or have a right understanding of sin, that we don't have to be ruled by it. We don't have to be defined by it. But because of Christ's work as representing us, taking on our sin, we can stand before God. But the beauty of this passage, the beauty of the message of the gospel is that the ultimate end is not just legal. The ultimate end of what Christ has done is not just about absorbing the wrath of God, although that's huge. It's not just about paying for our sins, although that is huge. And it's breathtaking in and of itself. But his goal is ultimately re relational. His goal ultimately is that we would be brought into relation with him. And in verse 1 you see there, he represents us before the Father. That he brings us into relationship with God, not as judge, but he brings those who are his into relationship with God, his Father. And if you turn over to chapter 3 of 1 John, verse 1, you see that, that John expands on this theme where he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we, we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. We've been adopted by him, brought into his family, forgiven of our sins. His work of sacrifice cleared the way for our adoption. And 
and it's the richest aspect of our salvation. And now as we think about sin as Christians, what's most important is that now that the context in which we understand our sin has shifted, right? It shifts from the courtroom to the family room. The context in which we understand our sin is no longer just legal, but it's relational. And now as we see sin, it's the way that a loving, perfect father would deal with a child. And as we understand that sin is no longer something that defines us most, but our adoption does. And our desire as a child that has a father who is perfect, our desire is to live a life that's honoring to him. Fellowship with God comes as I understand my identity as a believer in Christ. It's expanded as I understand the basis on which that's set, Christ's work that has brought about this adoption, my relationship with God as relating to God as a father. But John goes on the very last phrase of these two verses where he says, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the entire world. He goes and he expands this message. He expands the scope of the message for us. And my fellowship with the Father grows. Our fellowship with the Father grows as we understand and live in the context of the scope of the gospel. Let me explain what I mean here. As he says that he that he is the propitiation for the sins of the entire world. He wants his readers to know, he wants us to know, that this gospel that we have enjoyed, the gospel that we have appreciated and gained the benefits of, is for everyone. It's universally needed by everyone. Therefore, it is to go to everyone. The problem, if you will, one of the issues of the Gnostic philosophy was that it was inherently exclusive. It was for special people who had special kinds of knowledge. It wasn't for everyone. And John does not want the same mistake to be made about the gospel. It's to go everywhere and to everyone. And that's why he adds this phrase, this final phrase, this work of Christ which makes sinners to become children of God is offered universally because it's needed universally. This work of Christ which makes sinners to become children of God is offered universally because it's needed universally by everyone as we sit. Now, it's, we want to be careful exactly as we enter this territory exactly what this means and what this doesn't mean. Let me explain first what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that everyone is universally saved. That's not John's point. Others have taken this passage to mean that. That's not there. If you'll turn with me to chapter 5 of, of the same letter, you see that John makes it clear that the universal salvation, that everybody receiving the forgiveness of Christ um, universally is not as his point. In verse 11 of chapter 5, John writes, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. As he writes, he says, Who has the Son? Or who has the life? Those who have the Son. And so the point is not that everyone is saved, but that the need of Christ is for everyone. This work of Christ is offered to everyone universally. This also doesn't mean that God is not sovereign in the choosing and calling of those who will respond to Him. Because He is. The Gospel goes to all. Some respond. Those whom He calls. John Stott puts it like this, a universal pardon is offered for the sins of the whole world 
as, and is enjoyed by those who embrace it. It can be easy for us to be careful with a passage like this, and we need to be. We need to make sure that we know what it doesn't mean, but oftentimes we can miss exactly what it does mean. Our caution is important, but here's John's point, I believe. As he says that he is the propitiation for not just our sins, but for the sins of the world, that the scope of the gospel, this great saving action of God in Christ, is global. It's universal and it's for everyone because there is no person on the face of the earth that has ever lived that doesn't need what Christ has to offer. There's no one sitting in this room, no one in the city of Lawrence, Kansas. Go on out in concentric. There's no one that doesn't need the work that Christ has provided for them. And this is a very characteristic theme. I'm going to give you a few verses you can look up at other, t- other points in time. But if you look with me, at, at, turn over to chapter 4 of the same book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. You see the same theme of this universal offer. Verse 14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. That, that Christ's work, His saving work, was, is offered to all. I'm going to give you some other passages. If you look throughout the book of, throughout the Gospel of John, in John 1, 29, John 3, 16 and 17, John 4, 39 through 42, John 12, 47, a variety of passages in which we see the same thing being offered. It's, it's, we're, it's clear that this offer is to everyone. Now to conclude, the, the question we need to ask is, what's the point there? What, what, what is the, what's the point knowing that the, this offers for everyone, that everyone has need of Christ? Well, a couple of things that's helpful for us. First of all, it provides for us a lens by which we see people. Understanding that, that a person's deepest need, that every person we come in contact with, needs what Christ has to offer. It gives us a lens to understand what their real need is. Every person we come in contact with in our lifetime, Christian and non-Christian alike, those sitting in this room, need Christ's work on a daily basis. In the same way that we need air to breathe, water to drink, and food to eat, we need what Christ has to offer for us. So it allows us to give us a lens to see truly the condition of every person. But secondly, it gives us a a lens to understand the solution, if you will, to to the human situation, to the human problems that we encounter. If you read the news, there's no lack of human situations and problems that we see in the world in which we live today. Because at the heart of every problem, at the heart of every situation that we have, it's, it's abundantly spiritual. It might be more than spiritual, but it's never less than spiritual. You can always trace the external problem back to a spiritual root. And this lens of our need for Christ, the universal need for Christ and what he does, enables us to see humanity and the problems. And it doesn't release us from seeking solutions on those levels, physical, financial, psychological, mental, on and on and on. We need to be meeting needs at those levels, but it will always cause us to trace it back to its root, the need for Christ. And how does this enhance our, our fellowship with God? How does seeing through this lens enhance our fellowship with God? Well, as we begin to see people in this way, we begin to see people as He sees them. As God sees people, He sees them with this core need of the work of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, for the power and the penalty of sin to be dealt with. Remember Christ as He preached in Galilee and in Matthew chapter 9, there's that passage where it describes him as having compassion on the people 
because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That as Christ saw them, it brought about compassion. It enabled him to see them truly as they are. And as we see people through the same lens, it enables us to see them not just with the external things, the things that ordinarily will bug us, the things that frustrate us about people, enables us to see beyond those external things, beyond the difficult neighbor, the difficult boss, the difficult coworker, the professor, the, the one who's antagonistic to our faith. Those who are different from us, it allows us to see that their greatest need is Christ. And as we see through the same lens, as we see people in that way, we share with God at a deep level. At this point, we experience what he experiences. At this point, we move beyond just compassion to action, and he enables us to be a part of the solution. He enables us to be a part of taking the gospel from one broken life to another. As we share as beggars who have found bread where others can find bread as well. And so fellowship with the Father comes as we see what he sees, as we feel what he feels, and as we respond with his power. And here's the beauty. As we step out, as we're a part of taking, if you will, this message and word and deed to others, what happens in us? What happens is us is we're reminded again of what Christ has done in us. We're reminded of our need consistently for his forgiveness in our lives. We're reminded of the fact that, that we're no longer defined by our sin, but we're defined by a relationship with God in which we call him our Father. And great joy comes from that. As John writes to them, he wants to hit on these points. Fellowship comes as we have a right understanding of sin. It grows as we understand the basis of that forgiveness comes because of the work of Christ. And it's multiplied as we capture the scope of God's saving purposes. There is no one that doesn't need what Christ has to offer. And in fact, the gospel is universal insofar as everybody has need of what it has to offer. It's not exclusive. It's not for us alone. And God will see to it that as the seed is sown, the fruit will be be born from that to his pleasure and his glory. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful again for this work in our lives. And we confess that uh, we take it sometimes tritely. We keep it to ourselves And uh, we forget these things. Help us to not be too lenient or too severe regarding this in our lives. Help us to remember that because of our adoption that that sin has been dealt with. And I pray, Father, that we would remember that this work that you've done in our hearts isn't for us alone. It's for everyone. And that you would enable us to take it to those who are around us. Help us to see clearly those around us. Help us to understand that this fellowship with you comes as we see and respond to the universal need of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would ask you to stand this morning. I'm going to read as a benediction a passage, short three verses in Revelation. And a little bit different from most benedictions, but what I want us to hear as I read through this is John writing as God has revealed to him, I believe this is a picture of what real fellowship with God looks like. The part and, part and parcel of the gospel is that's universal. It goes to everyone. We have a picture in Revelation chapter 7 of this work, of what the fulfillment of fellowship with God looks like. I'm going to read this. Our response this morning to the benediction is, is Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Now receive this 
as God's benediction. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and, all, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, Christ is Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.